thinking outside the vault. I'm Andrew. And I'm Zach. This week, we're speaking with Patrick Murphy, one of Kasasa's executive strategists. Patrick has held a number of roles at Kasasa and has a deep understanding for the anxiety many community banks and credit unions are feeling about where the economy is headed. We decided to pick his brain. How do community banks and credit unions sort of perceive the current climate? I think the question is always one about risk, right? And it's really hard to figure out where the economy and where consumer behavior is going to go. So it's a lot easier to sort of stand back and wait until things look clearer. But the problem is that things are never going to look clearer. And so what that ends up doing is fostering this hesitancy to uh, kind of make the strategic moves that they have to make and uh, not really reflecting that, that if, if now isn't the time, then there isn't going to be a time. And I think that's the big challenge is just recognizing that, yes, there are a lot of reasons to be hesitant. There are a lot of reasons to really uh, be confused about what's going to happen next with the economy, with rates, with where consumer behavior is going. But if you use those questions as a reason to wait, then you're going to be even further behind because those questions are only going to keep getting bigger. I think that's a good point for sure. You mentioned the economy. You mentioned consumer behavior. From like uh, you know my perspective as a marketer, I look at sort of the trends that create uncertainty for me, which mm-hmm. is you know technology, uh, new competitors, uh, you know new social media platforms popping up. Those things are are only accelerating. I'm guessing like the economy doesn't necessarily have faster new questions coming in. But am I dead wrong in that assumption, or are there um, things that you mentioned that actually are getting more confusing as time goes on because the the pace of change and uh, just the number of players that are involved in the game? Well, I do think that there are there are real questions about the underlying economic system right now, and I think there I think it's possible to look at what's happening with the U.S. economy particularly, but also. The, the economy around the world, the global economy more generally, and, and wonder if a lot of the assumptions we've had over the last 30 to 50 years are maybe unraveling a little bit. And when you start putting that together with the uncertainty of current trade disputes and Fed rate increases or not rate increases and conflict between the Fed and the administration, and you start wondering about all of those things, then it's easy to feel really concerned about taking any steps forward because you don't know how the landscape is shifting around you. So while I think that it's easier to see dramatic changes in consumer behavior than it is to see dramatic changes on the economic front, I think there's a lot of concern about, hey, are we going to be in recession in a year or two years? Um, what's going to happen with rates? Are they going to keep going up steadily or is the Fed just going to leave them sitting here and uh, until the possibility of recession? Um, are, the, are the rate uh, stabilization right now, is that stabilization going to help the economy? What's going to happen with trade policies? Um, so I think it's possible to feel a ton of uncertainty about all of that, not really know how consumers are going to react to it, not know what it's going to do to a credit unions or a bank's bottom line. Um, or to the rest of the industry. And, and I do think it's that uncertainty that does drive um, some of the hesitancy to step forward. I'll tell you, I've been even talking with an institution this morning where um, they clearly need a lot of deposit dollars. 
But they are even looking from their data. I knew that this was going to be the way the conversation was going to go. They're at a point where they haven't committed to a strategy for how they're going to fund their deposit needs. And it's really because of this uncertainty they're feeling. And of course, our hope is that we can show them that Casasa is actually a perfect strategy for that. But um, because we are flexible in the long run and what institutions need to be thinking about whether or not they partner with us is really figuring out a strategy that they're not locked into, a strategy that can actually adapt with their needs over the next five to 10 years, recognizing that a lot of these things are in flux. That makes sense. Zach, you were going to ask a question. Yeah, I was going to ask a question about rates because um, I try to keep pace with that. I read the Wall Street Journal and, and try to pay attention to what the Fed is doing. And maybe I just was reading you know, from the wrong sources or just one source. But my impression was that the Fed was pretty clear about what they were going to do with rates. But everybody's response was like, oh, man, rates, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I, I, that really confused me because it seemed like they were pretty clear about saying, yeah, we're probably going to keep praising them slowly as long as things look good. And then if they stop looking good, we'll maybe stop. And I didn't, that didn't feel confusing to me, but clearly I was in the minority. Can you speak to that? <laughs> I think it, it comes down partly to, to the question of market psychology and the Fed plays an important psychological role, just like it does uh, an important economic role. And the interesting thing is that the Fed's control over the economy ultimately is pretty indirect. And uh, so because of that, a lot of the impact that its moves really have are more psychological and it's more about investors reacting to it. So sometimes the Fed will uh, try and, I mean, I, I think maybe part of the reason you're hearing that confusion is that when the Fed says, yeah, we expect to keep raising rates, we're just gonna you know, stay put for the moment. I think what the Fed is trying to say is we feel like the fundamentals of the economy are pretty good and we're just trying to keep things from overheating, but uh, we, we still feel pretty good about where we are. Now, when other people hear that, they might be thinking, you know, the Fed's just trying to encourage me to believe that the economy's okay right now, but they're actually worried because they stopped their program of quarterly rate increases. So I think there's some element of people kind of double guessing what the Fed is saying and trying to figure out if the Fed is trying to have a psychological effect versus being just, you know, blunt and upfront about their long-term plans. That makes sense. And I think that's true. Like we did a survey of some, um, you know, executives at institutions uh, predicting where rates will go. Mm -hmm. And the consensus was that at the end of this year, going into 2020, they're all going to go down. So it looks like they're anticipating some sort of recession. And, you know, the interesting thing is that when I'm talking with institutions, by and large, the folks who are most concerned about what the Fed is going to do or not going to do are, are the folks who haven't yet adapted to the rate increases that have already happened. And when you look at what rates have done over the last three to four years, it's a dramatic change. I mean, in the space of just a few years, we've gone from near zero Fed funds rate up to an effective Fed funds rate that is, you know, I, I mean, I don't even know how to put a multiplier on that. So it's been a massive economic change. And by and large, the institutions that are really talking themselves into not adapting to that now are the institutions that haven't yet adapted to it. And all I would say is that if, if you're out there right now as a community financial institution and you haven't 
yet uh, really strategically taken account of the fact that rates in a lot of the country are north of 3%, then I'd say it doesn't matter a lot whether the rates keep steadily increasing or whether they stay flat because the rate environment has dramatically changed and we all need to have adapted to it already. When you talk about adapting, something that comes to mind is repricing, but I'm curious if there is more embedded in that phrase of, you know, adapting than just simple repricing. Can you speak to that? Sure. I mean, some of it's absolutely repricing and um, that gets into a question about what kind of vehicles you're using when you think about your prices. So we can talk about that in a second, but of course, when you're thinking about where the rate environment is, there are both sides of the balance sheet, and it gets into a really complicated question about the strategy that uh, you know each institution is going to choose in terms of balancing its loan side of the balance sheet with its deposit side of the balance sheet, and so that's something that really you know institutions have to think really carefully about that. Um, that's their bread and butter, so they're used to tackling those complex questions, but. In the, in the kind of situation where they are now, they really need to be thinking about adding more tools to their toolbox. And when you're asking about repricing, one of the things that um, you know, typically happens in uh, an environment where rates have increased a lot, like the current environment over the last few years, is that institutions will have repriced their uh, time deposits. And a lot of institutions I see are actually pretty heavily reliant on having, you know, a 48 month or a 60 month CD that they've actually priced up to, uh, you know, 3% or above. And um, part of adapting to the current rate environment is actually finding tools where you don't have to actually uh, reprice your deposit so quickly. And that's one of the benefits that reward checking brings to the table because it really acts as if it's further out on the yield curve. So you don't have to reprice so quickly. And some of our institutions that went out with, uh, you know, a Casasa lineup of products, for example, um, two or three years ago, still haven't had to reprice because they came out and they offered really healthy rates of, you know, two, two and a half percent. Um, and the structure of the products enabled them to do that in a really profitable way. So they're still sitting on a product lineup that feels relevant to consumers in their marketplace, even though the institution hasn't had to do any repricing over the last two plus years. So I think it's, you know, when you think about reacting to rate changes, it, it is a matter of thinking of the kind of deposits you want. It's a matter of thinking, you know, where do you want to be in that rate market? But it's also a matter of thinking, what are the tools that are in my toolbox that are going to enable me to, you know, offer rates and have a conversation with my community that feels really exciting to potential account holders, but doesn't require me to constantly be jumping on the rate bandwagon and trying to figure out, you know, where am I going to price this month? You want to be looking for something that's going to give you a little bit more strategic stability. That makes sense. I kind of want to go back to something you were saying earlier and put you in a bit of an impossible spot of like reading people's minds. But you, you were talking about the kind of internal dialogue at an institution and the conversation you had this morning. Um, but it sounds like institutions are pretty good at, at identifying what their major threat is or what the problem that they're currently experiencing is. So let's say they need to find deposits. They're good at saying, all right, that's our problem. 
what they're not so good about is picking a strategy and committing to it. Is that because they think the situation will resolve itself? I guess, first of all, is that accurate? And do they not act because they think it's going to solve itself with time? Uh, because there's too many options to choose from? What, what is kind of that barrier to action? I'd say it's not the same for everyone. And <clears throat> so I talked to dozens and dozens of you know, institutions in a given year, and some of them really do have, uh, I think, a really clear idea of the challenges in front of them. And they might be a little hesitant to commit to a strategy or they're exploring different strategies because they want to find one that's really going to be flexible, that's going to be long term, it's going to give them, um, you know, the right approach for their communities. But there are also folks who historically have been fortunate enough, for example, this is a situation I see not not too uncommonly where I'm talking with a, a credit union or a community bank who actually has a lot of their current deposits sitting in really low rate deposit tools like money markets um, or savings accounts. And they might be paying, you know, five basis points or 10 basis points on these dollars. And as a result, their cost of funds is pretty low and they have been really fortunate. They felt really good and secure with, um, you know, a really low cost of funds and long-term deposit dollars that have been sitting in there that they have had to pay very little on. And one of the things that I have seen is that a lot of times institutions are really slow to recognize that those deposit dollars are dollars they can't take for granted anymore. And in the current environment where rates have risen a lot, a lot of institutions are finding those deposit dollars are already leaving because consumers are increasingly looking for places to park their money where they can earn more than five basis points. And there are a lot of options out there. And, you know, despite the current environment of uh, economic uncertainty and people talking about, you know, the R word recession happening over the next year or two, despite all of that, consumers still have a ton of options when you look at not just the big banks, but also the, the, the neo banks and the online banks where they can just open up an account in minutes and park, you know, $20,000 and be earning vastly more on a money market account than they have been at their community financial institution. So I will say that one of the sources of complacency that I've seen is folks who have had low rate deposits and, and haven't yet recognized the threat of those deposits leaving. So it sounds like the deposit flight is a major threat that is kind of being underestimated right now. Yeah, I would argue that that is absolutely true and that a lot of institutions are taking for granted a deposit base that they were able to build uh, that was very low rate. They were able to build that in large part because of the effects of the last financial crash. And after the financial crisis of the late 2000s, consumers were desperate for really secure places to put their money and they were okay with getting five basis points on that. Um, and earning five basis points on that was the price that consumers were willing to pay in order, or, or let's say the, the benefit they were willing to give up, um, earning just five basis points. That's what they were willing to give up in order to have a place that was really stable, really safe. And now we're at a point where consumers are looking for other options. And I think not all institutions have really adapted to recognize, wow, consumers can take their money a lot of other places than me. And 
you know, when it comes to a money market account, uh, I'm not, I'm not really going to be able to keep these deposit dollars inside my walls. Yeah, that, I think that's actually a good segue. Um, cause one of the things for us that we talk a lot about on the marketing side of things is the threat of the mega banks, right. And the neo banks and for us, mm-hmm. that urgency is very real and it's, and it's obvious. Uh, and then when we talk to, you know, people that are out in the field, like, you know, you who are talking to actual institutions, we find out that especially in rural areas where mega banks don't have the same presence, that that story just doesn't resonate, right? Like it, they don't feel the urgency mm-hmm. of those other institutions encroaching on their deposit dollars. So how do we, I mean, I guess my question is like, wh- what do we say to those people who are in rural environments where the threat isn't obvious? You know, how, do, how does how do we make that urgency more real to them? Because um, it seems like it is real. It's just a little bit hidden or underestimated, as you said. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would say that in my experience, I, I typically try and get there just by asking a lot of questions. And the reality is that if if there's an institution out there that really and truly has looked through all of its data really understands its account holders, does not see any dollars leaving the institution at all, and feels like it can still get away with offering very low rates in the current um, economic situation, then I, I would argue, yeah, maybe you don't need to do anything different. But I think most of the institutions that are in that situation, or, or believe they're in that situation, don't actually have the safety they think they do. And one of the roles I think um, folks like Kasasa can play is kind of gently asking some of those hard questions and really working with the institution to help them look at, uh, you know, their deposit portfolio, look at their data in a way that helps them get to those answers so they can really figure out, you know, do I feel safe because I'm really safe? Or do I feel safe because I'm actually not accurately looking at the sources of risk on my balance sheet right now, and I'm not really understanding the changes in consumer behavior that have been happening? I think you're absolutely right on the second point. I mean, something that Zach and I have discussed a lot about is the idea of invisible forces at play in the market. So, you know, maybe a credit union or community bank is used to analyzing their market by seeing the retail footprint or, you know, in, in their community. Um, so like, you know, who's down the street that's trying to woo these deposits away. But the reality is, is that the competition now, a majority of it isn't going to be physical brick and mortar. It's going to be online. The options that consumers have are far more than perhaps you're recognizing because they have so much access to their keyboard that they don't even have to leave the house to look at. And, you know, I, of course, I don't think the branch is going anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. Studies seem to show that there's still a lot of behaviors that people prefer to do in person. Uh, but when it comes to some of those uh, things like a checking account, that, you know, they don't necessarily need to go in branch for that anymore. They don't necessarily prefer to do that in branch. Um, and they have a lot of other options. Do you think that's accurate or do you think that's missing the mark? I think it's accurate. I One of the things that I think we need to flag with that is they have a lot of other options now. And just because not all consumers are taking those other options now doesn't mean they might not really soon. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly where we are in terms of the, the you know, if you think about 
um, consumer behavior changing over time. And if you think about plotting that on a graph, I'm not sure where we are on the curve. But one of the things that worries me is that maybe this is almost like a punctuated equilibrium where a lot of things are building up. And then suddenly, in a, a shorter time period, we're going to see consumer behavior changing dramatically when it comes to financial services. Because ultimately, what we're talking about is consumers needing to access the services to, to actually help them manage their financial lives. They don't need a checking account for that. And you know, I think it's important for us to recognize that when we talk about a checking account, we're talking about uh, you know, a 100-year-old plus uh, financial instrument for consumers. And now you have something like Apple's new credit card coming out that's tied to Apple Pay that is really trying to, on some level, emancipate people from um, or, or encourage people to break from a relationship uh, that is primarily with a more traditional financial institution. So there are a lot of pressures for people to move away from the idea of a bank or credit union. And I think, you know, within Casasa, we're all convinced that community financial institutions can play an extraordinarily positive role in people's lives for the long foreseeable future. And, you know, the clients and the prospects that I talk to in the community financial institution space are by and large deeply committed to the financial well-being of their community. So I think there's a value here that we have to be unabashed about saying we believe in, we believe community financial institutions are important and can play an important role in giving people financial solutions for managing their lives. But we have to recognize that a lot of what's happening in the marketplace is not just giving people better checking accounts, but actually giving people non-checking accounts, giving people totally new tools. And we have to be honest that we don't know when people are actually going to flip and start to think of those as serious alternatives. I think by and large, they haven't yet, but we could start seeing that really soon. And I think that's part of the reason why it's really important for a community financial institution to find ways to uh, offer really authentic relationships to their account holders, their current account holders and potential account holders. And it's one of the things that we try and do with the Casasa brand is really to start looking forward to a future that isn't just about checking accounts, but is also about consumers' sense of their relationship with the institution that is providing tools for them managing their life. It's bigger than just an account, right? It's really about solutions for people's lives. That wraps up this episode of Thinking Outside the Vault. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this episode or topics you'd like us to tackle in future episodes, please email us at social at casasa.com.